One of our missions here at CanLyme is to get physicians trained in the clinical diagnosis and early treatment of Lyme disease. In this episode, we're going to meet a doctor who is helping her colleagues diagnose and treat Lyme. She has funded and developed a free online tool to train physicians about Lyme disease. Dr. Betty Maloney is an expert on Lyme disease and treatment. She has trained everyone from the Boy Scouts of America to the Army Corps of Engineers on tick prevention, and she has worked tirelessly on continuing education for doctors. Dr. Maloney hosts a free, fully accredited online course for physicians and other healthcare professionals who want to learn more about Lyme. We are honored she took the time to speak with us. Hello, Dr. Maloney, and welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. How did you get involved in working with patients with Lyme disease? Well, I live in an area that has Lyme. I live in Minnesota. um, And I just, over time, came to realize that what I had been uh, taught in my training and in my postgraduate work really didn't match up with what I was seeing um, with all of my patients. And so I really got more involved, I got more involved in physician education, but at the same time trying to support uh, patients through the uh, Minnesota Lyme Association. That's so great. Um, Can you tell me more about your uh, accredited continuing medical education program, the Lyme CME? Oh, I'd love to, um, because that is my baby. So way back in 2007, I realized that um, we needed to change how physicians were educated on tick-borne disease. And I started with Lyme disease because that was the best known of the tick-borne diseases. I began doing um, live seminars, and um, Usually that would take about six to eight hours, and I would have to go into a community where physicians were ready to come to an all-day seminar. And over time, I realized that that really narrowed my ability to um, reach my colleagues. And so beginning in 2015, I started offering online education via Lyme CME. That sounds like such a great way for people to keep uh, keep their training going. Well, you know, it is because it's these are accredited um, CME programs and they're offered for free. And people can do it um, on their phone, on their laptop, wherever they would like, on a tablet. And they can do it when it's convenient for them. They can also start a module and pause it and then come back to it. Um, and once they've completed the module, they can come back to it again and again as, as often as they would like um, so that they can keep uh, refreshing the information that they learned or to pick up new little pieces of information that maybe they didn't catch on the first go round. That's amazing. So it's free and it's online. So what is the biggest barrier to people getting this education, do you think? Awareness that it's there. And so it, physician um, physician learners, that has been a tough market uh, to crack. 
um, because physicians have so many different CME opportunities, um, especially now um, online. And so uh, getting out to physicians, just pushing out the information that Lyme CME uh, and it's LymeCME.info um, that the site exists um, has been a barrier to uh, getting physicians enrolled. Is the training available for Canadian doctors? Well, um, that's a great question. And I know that some Canadian doctors have taken it. And I think because it's accredited through the Minnesota, or excuse me, through the American Academy of Family Physicians, that um, Canadian family physicians probably would get the credits. Uh, but I'm not sure about other specialties. They certainly can take the course um, and I would encourage them to do that, but I'm not sure how the credentialing would work. Well, I'm happy to help do some homework on that. <laughs> right. And, you know, we can come back to that someday. Definitely. Uh, because I think that's an important uh, question. But my understanding is that anyone can take it, that the primary care doctors are likely to be able to claim credit. Um but I don't know the details. And so I'll do some work on that and I'll just send you an email on that. Sure, that'd be great. We'd love to just find ways to help support Canadian physicians in this in these training opportunities. Oh, I think that's important because, you know, I did participate in um, the conference that they had on, on a new framework. I think it might have been in, in 2016. Yeah, that's right. I remember seeing you present there in Ottawa. Yes, yes. Um, and so I think um, it was unfortunate. I thought that um, we didn't really move the, the ball very far on that one. No. But I think that we certainly made the case that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. And so I think just keep hammering away at that point, we could maybe um, do a little bit better in the future. But it's a, it's a difficult situation. Absolutely. And I understand, too, that you worked as a, you, you had a role as a peer reviewer for the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. Um, yes, I did. Yes, I did. And that was uh, very uh, interesting. And I um, think that that's, research is our way out of this. I know that when I was working in, with Minnesota patients, sometimes they would lament that that science had abandoned them and I was actually trying to tell them no that that science is our way out and so we want to encourage all the research we can um, so that we can clarify uh, what needs to be done for uh, individuals given their unique circumstances. Absolutely. I've done some reading that you've, uh, well, some of the writing that you've done around institutional bias and group thinking, and I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind commenting on that. So to me, groupthink is a, a really dangerous situation, particularly when uh, the evidence that one is, is managing is uh, limited. And so what happens is a particular uh, point of view will evolve and then everyone in the group endorses it, even though in reality, uh, there's really insufficient evidence to endorse a particular position. And so groupthink to me uh, 
worries me quite a bit because uh, physicians oftentimes are not as independent a thinker as I would like them to be um, for a whole variety of reasons, um, but they often can fall prey to groupthink, and, um, and that's a problem for patients with Lyme disease and the other tick-borne illnesses. Yeah, I think it's a really important dialogue, and I know just the uh, the concept of institutional bias is certainly something that is being discussed uh, in Canada right now at the institutional and government level. So right, it, and you run into it even in um, in trying to uh, get a paper published. Right. So, for instance, when we were working to get the eyeline the ILADS guidelines published back in 2014. Um, with I co-authored that with uh, Dan Cameron and Lorraine Johnson. And at one of the journals, it, the uh, feedback that we got from the peer reviewers had nothing to do for a couple of them with the actual scientific evidence and our analysis and assessment of that evidence, but rather who we represented in in this case it was that we were authors for the ILADS guidelines and so we had to go to the editor and point out that those were not um, valid uh, scientific reasons for accepting or rejecting the uh, paper and so institutional bias um, plays quite a role in who gets published and who might get rejected. Just to switch gears a little bit, uh, I am I, aware that you developed your clinical skills in a different way than maybe other physicians have had an opportunity. And clinical diagnosis is so important for for physicians to know about. How did how did you hone your own clinical skills? I got sent to Guam, <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't have access to laboratory research there. Yeah. So early on in my career in the uh, early 90s, my husband was uh, in the Navy as a OBGYN. And in payback for his medical school education, he was stationed in Guam for three years. And so I was practicing in the civilian sector. And we had very limited access to diagnostics and even therapies. Um, And so you really had to um, pay attention to what patients were telling you and what you were seeing. And this was especially true because we had patients with rheumatic fever um, on Guam disease, which you rarely see in the U.S. And um, we didn't have an echocardiogram machine on the island for civilians. And so you had to uh, determine whether someone needed to be flown to Hawaii based on what they told you about um how their breathing was, and also what you were hearing when you listened to their heart and lungs, or if you could see the edema in their legs. And so because the patients were having to spend their own money on that trip, you really wanted to do right by them. And so it really pushed me to um, not only to develop those skills, but then to have confidence in the skills and not necessarily let them be uh, overridden by uh, a lab test. That's amazing. It sounds like you really honed your listening skills. And I know my dad has quoted before and said, you know, physicians really need to listen to their patient because the patient is telling the doctor their diagnosis. 
Right. And that's, I think, you know, that's kind of paraphrasing. Um, Osler's has a exactly. quote along those lines. Yeah. Right. And, um, and sometimes it's difficult to listen to patients. Um, and I don't mean to offer that as an excuse, but I do offer it as an explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes patients are not good historians or um, they have so many symptoms that we do need to hear, but we need to find a way to help patients organize um, how they're presenting their story so that it's easier for the listener to pick up on the details. Um, so I actually at one time gave a little talk on um, on talking to your doctor about Lyme disease because um, how one presents their history can make it easier or harder for the physician to reach that um, diagnosis. That sounds like an amazing presentation. That would be so valuable to so many people. You know, people. I think I'm going to have to um, resurrect that mm-hmm. and and find a way to uh, put it on my website that I offer for the public. I haven't done much with that of late, but um, maybe that's a good way to revitalize that because I think that um, the the patient-physician relationship is a a partnership and each of the partners brings different strengths to that relationship and so patients are the experts on what they are experiencing and then physicians bring the expertise from what what's known about the science and um, medical therapies and so i want to make sure that each person in that partnership can um offer the best part of themselves to that partnership. So for patients, it's helping them understand how to present their history um, in a way that's easier to digest. And for um, clinicians, it's helping them to listen to the patients, um, to not just roll your eyes as someone gives you 15 symptoms in uh, 30 seconds, and then also to help uh, physicians think through um, the different scenarios that uh, patients might present with when they show up in the clinic uh, with Lyme disease. I think that would be so valuable. And anytime you want to talk about that in the future, we'd be happy to have you back on the podcast to talk about how to speak to your doctor about Lyme disease. I think that would be so valuable for everyone. And I Well, just... I'll, I'll jot that down, Sarah. Yeah. My <laughs> Oh, dear. I'm get those Christmas cards out. I don't think. <laughs> That's right. Um, if there was one thing you could tell doctors and other health professionals about Lyme prevention, what would that be? My first idea with prevention is to be aware of where you might encounter a tick. Because if you don't encounter a tick, you're not going to get Lyme disease. And so uh, I want the public to know um, when they're engaging in activities that put them in tick habitat or tick territory, because uh, it's not always tick habitat. And um, an example of that, if you don't mind, is I was playing bridge at a friend's house in um, a small city, but the person lives within the, you know, the main area of the city, so not on the 
verge of a forest. Um, and I was petting her new puppy. And later on during the bridge game, there's a black-legged tick crawling down the sl- my sleeve. Oh, my goodness. Which I'm sure transferred from the dog. So it was like, okay, where had the dog been? And um, so in that city, they do have deer that kind of roam the city streets. And so when we talk about where tick habitat is, you know, it's not always that leafy vegetation at the edge of a woods. It, it might be where someone's pet was or where their deer have migrated to. And so I want people, physicians and patients, to be aware that um, tick territory actually is expanding beyond tick habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm aware you've done a lot of work uh, trying to get m- more better media coverage for the general public as well as, you know, targeted populations like campers and hunters and golfers. Um, and I, I also read one of your quotes, uh, an ounce of permethrin is worth a pound of antibiotics. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I, I think that is so true. So um, I encourage people to use um, permethrin on their clothing um, and also to use uh, some kind of repellent on their exposed skin. I've had some interesting experiences talking about permethrin, uh, and I think sometimes the warning labels are uh, really scaring people away. Uh, so I've had people get all panicky because when they're spraying their clothes, they accidentally you know, sprayed their skin. Um, and so I always tell people that, you know, just if you get permethrin on you, all you have to do is wash it off. When we treat scabies, we actually have people apply permethrin directly to their skin from uh, chin to toe. And um, we don't get too panicked about that. I've never had anyone mm-hmm. die from their scabies treatment. And so I really do try to uh, push back against any fears about the use of uh, permethrin. Mm-hmm. I know that in the time that it's drying, that it can be toxic to cats. So people who own cats need to be careful when they're using their permethrin. But otherwise, it's, it's really a safe product and highly effective. Um, and I think that uh, it's often underused. Uh, and I it's my go-to thing. So before I even consider the uh, repellents, I'm always thinking about when's the last time I treated these clothes, you know, and, and I encourage people to know that they don't have to treat their whole wardrobe, but they need to treat the clothes that they're going to use when they're out where um, in tick habitat or tick territory, but especially in tick habitat. So gardeners need to treat their gardening clothes Campers need to treat their camping clothes. Um, I have granddaughters, and when they come over here, you know, we want to make sure that the clothes that they're wearing at our house are um, treated. Uh, and we always treat the hats that they wear as they walk through the little woods down to our uh, lake. But so permethrin and repellents are really important. And then the other fact that I'd like to get into is just um, the importance of doing a, an adequate tick check. Many people kind of fool themselves and they do that quick glancing tick check. Well, black lead ticks are really quite small and especially the nymphs. And so um, you really have to spend some time and look and under good lighting circumstances. So when I was working with the Boy Scouts, I made the point of they should be doing tick checks in their swimsuits out in sunlight, not waiting to do it 
in the evening by flashlight in a tent. Um, because we really need to look carefully and thoroughly if we're going to find a little tick. One patient I know, I asked her, you know, how'd you find that nymph? And she said, well, it was a freckle with legs. And so you really have to um, be very vigilant and oftentimes employ a mirror or a friend to check out the back of you. Absolutely. Those are such great tips. I'm really happy to hear that you worked with the Boy Scouts and I think also the, the Army, didn't you, doing training with them? Yes, I would. Oh, that was a while ago, but it was the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, so I really am interested in work. I work with Audubon Society, Master Gardeners. Um, these are groups that need to hear our message on uh, Lyme disease awareness and um, prevention. And I've also uh, worked with school nurses, um, especially around the issue of school field trips. That's amazing. Well, I feel like I could talk to you forever about, you know, just diving into all these different subject areas. I think one of the last things I just wanted to touch on with you is around the cost of getting sick um, with Lyme disease and having an ongoing infection versus, you know, getting diagnosed early and being treated early. Well, I think some of the great work on on cost has come from, there's an older paper by Zhang um, with the CDC, and I think that was from 2006. And then um, the newer paper uh, coming out of John Alcott's group, and I, I don't recall who the lead author on the paper was, but it's a more recent in the last five years. Um, and they really look at the cost of uh, treatment uh, early versus late. And it's so substantial. And even in the uh, more recent paper by Alcott's group, they found that if a person has just a single symptom following treatment for Lyme disease, that that increases, I believe, their costs in the following 12 months after treatment um, by more than $2,000 just in that one year. And then, of course, people who have um, lots of symptoms and uh, lots of um, disability related to uh, having their Lyme diagnosis and treatment delayed, um, their costs can be substantial. And I think um, it can be well over $16,000 on average for people who are um, diagnosed later in disease. I have to admit, though, I haven't looked at that um, information for a long time. And so uh, I could be off on that $16,000 value, but it is it is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the key takeaway is really, though, that the earlier people can get diagnosed and treated, they're going to be more successful in recovering from that infection. And right. that's what and we want to support. <laughs> And if you don't mind, that's why I want to circle back to LymeCME.info for a minute. Thank you. Yes, please. So the whole point of that was let's get everyone to recognize and manage Lyme at its earliest stage when it is easier to diagnose and treat, right? So if we don't keep missing erythema migrans rashes and calling them spider bites, and get those people treated, then we'll have fewer patients with complicated um, illnesses and uh, who are more resistant to treatment down the line. 
Um, and so I really have Lyme CME as a way to get everyone just to master the basics, how to manage a tick bite, how to manage an erythema migrans rash, how to manage Lyme carditis. Um, I think those are in important uh, topics. And if we can get everyone to do the basics well, then we could just need a smaller group of physicians who are managing the more complex cases. And also, if everyone agrees on management of tick bites and early cases of Lyme disease, it'll really help um, decrease the rhetoric and the controversy that comes with Lyme disease. Yeah, I do have just one other little quote here I pulled out that I think also points to the need for that, which was where you mentioned that serological testing, while it's highly specific, is insufficiently sensitive to rule out Lyme disease. And I think that ties into the physician training again. It, it, it really does. Um, and, and let me explain that a little bit. So physicians, we tend to think that when we're ordering a test that they have been clinically validated to be useful um, on the patients that we're seeing. And the trouble with um, the serologic assays that are available is that none of them have been approved in the US by the FDA. They've been cleared. And the difference is, is that a cleared test does not need to demonstrate that it's clinically valid. It only has to demonstrate that it's on par to what's already available. And so, um, we can have a whole bunch of tests out there, but uh, if none of them are actually clinically validated, we really can't be confident in the uh, the results that they produce. And so um, I think the other point in that, Sarah, is that um, although we're trained about sensitivity and specificity and predictive values and, and likelihood ratios, we often forget that when we move into clinical medicine. Um, and so I have to remind physicians that if you have a highly specific test, which the um, serologic assays are, especially when you use them in a two-tiered fashion, then um, whenever you increase specificity, um, you decrease sensitivity. And so in decreasing sensitivity, that's where we get our false negatives. And so it's, it's a reminder of physicians that, again, to trust your clinical judgment, learn what Lyme can look like. So learn the pattern of Lyme disease, and then you can layer on serologic testing, which may or may not, um, I don't want to say validate, but may or may not agree with your clinical impression. Um, and if it doesn't, then I wouldn't necessarily throw out the clinical impression because of what the test result was. So again, I have two different modules regarding diagnostic testing on Lyme CME. The first is just to review the basics for clinicians, so to remind them of those principles of sensitivity and accuracy and precision. Uh, and then uh, a different module that goes over the uh, details of serology. And um, making the case that a negative test does not necessarily rule out the infection. These training modules sound like such a helpful tool for physicians. 
we will be sure to post a link to the Lyme CME website in our podcast notes, so check those out. Thank you so much, Dr. Maloney, for all the work that you do. I admire your dedication to supporting physicians in their training, and ultimately, thank you for looking out for the patients with Lyme disease and helping ensure an improvement in their quality of life. And again, my pleasure to join you, and I look forward to coming back another time, and we'll see what else we can chat about. That is Dr. Betty Maloney from Minnesota talking about Lyme education for physicians. She raised such an important point that a negative test does not rule out Lyme disease. And I also really loved her quote that research is our way out of this. Thanks for joining us. And remember, stay safe in the outdoors.